Welcome to Stupid Not Stupid, the podcast so littered with unverifiable information that not even the New York Post will cite us. <laughs> I'm Matt, joined as always by my man Jason, the world's leading authority on all things counterfactual. <laughs> yes, How I are you, man? Doing well, and I'm, I'm hoping that this one doesn't get blocked on Twitter and Facebook too. <laughs> well, if it does, once it gets posted back up, it'll be way more viral. <laughs> So uh, this week we have in front of us uh, a green hat distilled gin. How's that tasting for you, Jason? It's tasting pretty remarkable to me, man. This yeah. is uh, Th- this was at your suggestion too. So props to you for this one. I'm excited about it. Those years I spent uh, in ill repute have really paid off well in my my bartending knowledge. And, yeah. and you know, uh, make sure to uh, or feel free to drink along with us at home. The the more you drink, the better Jason and I sound. So that is a yeah, fact. <laughs> that's not stupid. So uh, before we get going, I guess we have to do what we always do, Jason, and that's. Matt and Jason are stupid. You suck! So this is where each week we look back at the uh, podcast we did the week before, figure out what we had wrong, uh, and then call ourselves stupid. So what do you got, Jason? Well, first of all, I would say that uh, it's not the week before. So <laughs> there's, there's our first stupid. Uh, secondly, uh, the only one I had, and I only listened to the podcast once, and we talked about a whole lot of stuff, so there are probably a lot more mistakes that I missed. The one that I got, and actually it was my wife that caught this and uh, nailed you on it. When you're talking about the atomic structure, what do you call the proton and the neutron? The proton and the neutron? Uh, uh, the atoms? The center of the atom is called the... The nucleus? No, it's called the nucleus. The nucleus. The nucleus. And that is the why when we're talking about atomic explosions or atomic power, it's nuclear, not... Hold nuclear. on. So what, what am I saying? <laughs> you keep saying nuclear. And it's nu- <laughs> nuclear. There, there's, you're, you're adding a second U. It's it's kind of like saying aluminium. Right? A- aluminium, Jason. If you're going to pronounce it like an Australian, pronounce it correctly. And this is why I'm glad we're recording now uh, for the first time in high definition. So we can really emphasize the syllable that I got incorrect in the last podcast. <laughs> so thanks for that. So uh, I looked real hard at the last podcast and I was trying to find something that I got wrong, which is really hard for me to do because I never make mistakes. So I, I'm embarrassed to say I spent a lot of time on this today. So I specifically zeroed in on the section where I was talking about gamma ray bursts, uh, specifically gamma ray bursts created by two stars colliding. And uh, what I said exactly was two stars colliding create an output of energy 10 quadrillion times more powerful than our sun, (laughs) which I said was an order of magnitude 16 times greater than the output. I spent a bunch of time not only checking the math, but reading through the technical definitions of order of magnitude, and then doing a very careful review of how to do my exponents. And it turns out I was right the whole time. I said it exactly (laughs) correct. The only thing that was stupid about this is the amount of time I spent confirming it because I was not confident in the way I said it. But I did not make a mistake. That's exactly how how you're supposed to say it. Well, the other one that my wife caught, and I actually haven't gone back and looked, but uh, you mentioned that Y equals MX plus B uh, resulted in a curve. And generally speaking, from a mathematical standpoint, if there's not an exponent in there, it shouldn't be a curve. It is the formula, the formula for calculating a curve. So that's how you utilize your Y equals MX plus B. I guess that's what I should have said. Yes. Not your Y equals MX plus B. <laughs> Once again, I'm, I'm getting chopped down syllable by syllable. Thanks right. to Dr. Callahan, right. not right. Jason Callahan. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't me at all. This is, this is all my wife. So speaking of last week, I was a bit despondent after that episode. How, how are you feeling after we've examined all the ways uh, that the world could end? 
Well, I actually took my first vacation in a very, very long time and uh, went down down south to Savannah, Georgia, and drank myself silly for a week and uh, <laughs> and wished the world would end. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was thinking that we could do something a little bit more hopeful this week, uh, since we talk so much about destroying life on this planet. I thought it. I mean, I, I thought it might be nice to uh, do a little bit of a balancing act and talk about all the other places we might find life in our solar system. So I, I, I just want to be clear, Jason. We're not uh, identifying the different places life could be and what that life could look like just so you can make a plan to destroy it. So <laughs> can, can we agree on that at the outset or else I don't want to you know, educate you about all this stuff? No, that's totally fine. So this is actually a subject that I find truly fascinating. This is something that I've, I've read a lot about over a lot of years. NASA has been looking at this for my entire lifetime. It used to be called exobiology until somebody realized that exo is actually outside. So the concept that you were looking outside biology for life seemed sort of contradictory. It's now referred to as astrobiology. Again, syllable police over here. Callahan. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So astrobiology, that's what we're doing today. That, that's exactly what we're looking at. Okay. Well, I'm going to propose then that uh, we start uh, at the innermost point in our solar system and then just work our way out. How does that sound? Well, again, you know, if we're going syllable by syllable here, I, I, I assume that you mean Mercury and not the sun. Yes. I, I, <laughs> okay. Let's establish right now uh, that the sun is not hospitable to life and just move on. I think that's not stupid. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. So we'll, we'll take it celestial body by celestial body and we'll examine the, the environment in which life could exist, what that life could look like, and then determine if it's stupid or not. All right. So Mercury. Spoiler alert, Jason, by the way, with uh, shouting that out earlier, Mercury is the first planet uh, from the sun. It is, uh, well, I guess we should just hit each one with some basic fact to start out, just set the scene. So Mercury is one third the size of Earth, closest planet to the sun. We already had that. It's the second densest planet, uh, and it has about one third the gravity of Earth. Uh, it's the most cratered planet. And the other thing that I wanted to do for each of these is I just wanted to work out how long you'd live on the surface of each thing we talk about uh, without a spacesuit. And uh, <laughs> there's not one go-to uh, credible academic source for this. So I, <laughs> I scoured the internet a little bit and the uh, my sources are a bit disparate and unsightable, but uh, <laughs> you know, my, uh, my science on this is what it is. And we're just going to go with what I come up with. So if you could hold your breath, so you already had a lung full of air because the pressure on Mercury is not analogous to Earth, but it's not zero. You it, you could conceivably live for up to 90 seconds based off of uh, chat room dialogue. That's what I was able to discern from the uh, amateur uh, astrobiologists who were chatting up about this. So just keep that in mind if you plan on going to Mercury without a spacesuit. And there'll be a Goldilocks zone where it's temperate in between, right? And we're going to talk about that, I think, a little bit as we go through each of these. Ah, the Cyclops planets. <laughs> <laughs> we know Mercury is the closest planet to the sun, so that means it's super hot. It's actually not the hottest planet. But off the bat, then that tells you probably pretty inhospitable. To life. That's true. However, at the poles of Mercury, as you said, it's one of the it's the most cratered body in our solar system. I would be curious to know if there there are certain asteroids that are actually more cratered, like per capita, than Mercury. I don't know. In some of these craters at the poles that are eternally in shade, even though it's so close to the sun and you've got all of this solar radiation washing over the planet, there are some places that are completely in the shade all the time and. Uh, there have been a couple of NASA missions that have, or I guess it was Messenger, that discovered the existence of of water ice in some of these craters. 
So you're right. Mercury is the most cratered object. And the thing that is interesting is if you try to date those craters, there are some that are very old. There are some that are very young, but there is a disproportionate amount that are all the same age, which is really diff which is really interesting. So one of the theories that astrobiologists or I guess astrogeologists, are they still geologists if it's not Earth? Yeah. The, the the definite or the term rather is a planetary geologist. Okay, so planetary geologists have proposed is that uh, at a specific time in Mercury's formation, it hit a critical mass of materials that had been deposited on it via comets and other things that it had absorbed that it had basically been impacted by that were pulled into the sun's gravity. Those meteors, those comets, the, the objects that collided with Mercury deposited the materials that they were made of, in many cases, water ice. That water ice was driven down through the surface through, I guess, I, I don't, I'm not sure if tectonic activity is the right term. Does it have to be tectonic activity to cause an earthquake? Can you have an, an earthquake without tectonic activity? Well, you can have an impact quake. Right. So through geological processes or just simply through impact, water ice got under the surface of Mercury. Over time, because of because of its close proximity to the sun, that water ice was slowly heated and vaporized and moved up through the surface, leaving hollow chambers under the surface of Mercury. Once the water ice all melted, nothing left to support the surface, and the surface of Mercury actually collapsed inside on itself. And that's why you have all these crater features across the surface that are the same age. And so... The, the most feasible explanation for this is water. I mean, water is the thing that you can put there that will evaporate, that will create the crater, that'll make it collapse. So this, this is the working theory, which means at some point under the surface of Mercury, there was liquid water, or I guess to move from a solid to a gas, you have to be liquid at some point. So we had water under the surface of Mercury, where we have water, could we so have life? That's a really interesting point. And I think that it's one that's going to come up over and over again as we're talking about this topic. And it's the idea that on Earth, everywhere that we find liquid water, we find life. However, we've done a lot of studying of life on Earth and also uh, environments elsewhere. And it's, it's relatively clear that it's not enough just to have liquid water. You have to have liquid water for a, a long enough period of time for particular chemical reactions to occur. And on top of that, you need an energy source. You have to have nutrients that life can actually subsume and continue to thrive on, and you need energy for the reactions to take place to enable them to subsume these, these nutrients, right? Um, what we see at Mercury is a really limited period of time for liquid water. The, the planet is basically made of iron, and so there's not much in the way of nutrient that from an Earth-based uh, perspective, we would see as nutrient-rich and on top of that, the planet is not tectonically active. Uh, you get a ton of energy from the sun, but it's all serious radiation. Like this is not usable uh, energy in terms of, of life, be it bacteria or you know microbes, what, what have you. So I think that this, despite the fact that there is uh, evidence of water on Mercury, I don't think that there's a very huge chance of there being life there. That's a nice way of saying that this idea is stupid. <laughs> All right. I'm with you on that. So life on Mercury, stupid. So we move on to the next planet, which- I'm just going to quiz you. I, I'm not confident you know the name or order of the planets, Jason, so I'm going to make you call them out. 
All right. So the next planet is Venus. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so Venus is uh, Jason's uh, panhandle uh, pronunciation of Venus. <laughs> we'll just bring you some basic facts real quick. Uh, so 95% the size of Earth. So it, in terms of comparison, yeah, pretty close to the size of Earth. It's the hottest planet. A year, by, 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 yeah, by a wide margin, we'll see. A year on Venus is uh, 225 Earth days, but you only get 1.5 Venus days per year. So we'll, we'll talk about <laughs> so that a little bit. If more. you have a terminal d- disease, move to Venus because every day <laughs> seems like a fucking eternity. <laughs> so because Venus is so hot and so dense, it actually spins in the opposite direction very slowly. And we'll talk about that a little more. There's a reason for that, that Venus has essentially gone in to retrograde. The, a- the average temperature is around 800 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so way hotter than Mercury. The atmosphere, 98% carbon dioxide. You know, there, there's an atmosphere there, which one of the most important precursors I, can, I think we're going to see as we take this journey through the solar system for life. But the problem is inside the atmosphere, uh, the pressure is 98 times greater than on Earth. And it rains sulfuric acid. Right. I mean, it sounds like a wonderful vacation home, right? Like uh, the place sounds like absolute hell. And the main reason for this, and this is actually sort of where we began to understand the concept of global warming on Earth. It's all of this carbon dioxide that's in the, the atmosphere. It just traps all of the solar heat from the sun inside the atmosphere of the planet. And just it, it becomes this runaway cycle of increasing temperatures. Wait, you mean you mean global warming is observable somewhere else in the universe and we could draw scientific conclusions from it that are comparable to our own There's planet? There's an entire field of study called, yeah, co- uh, comparable planetology. I'm pretty sure they were defunded in 2016. <laughs> uh, all of that said, what's really interesting about Venus is not the surface. Like we act, the 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 Soviets landed a spacecraft on the surface of Venus and it lasted all of about a minute and a half before it melted and yeah, it was completely destroyed by acid and temperature and pressure. And we should make another point about this, just just so we're consistent here. Uh, on the surface of Venus without a spacesuit, uh, life expectancy is one right. second. Oh, yeah. You are going to die immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> however, there are clouds on Venus. There is an upper atmosphere uh, that is much cooler has water vapor, and these clouds are basically a constant. They, they don't go away. They're not raining onto the surface as they do on Earth. This is part of the reason it was really difficult to see surface features on Venus for so long, because it, it, you know, it's completely covered in clouds all the time. Now, what's interesting is the chemical makeup of these clouds. You see a lot of the chemicals that are necessary for life on Earth. And the temperatures are not out of control. You have lots of water vapor. You have lots of energy. There, you know, there are uh, uh, nutrients within these clouds that could potentially support life. And most recently, uh, we have seen indications that there might be biological processes creating chemicals that we can measure from a spectroscopic measurement in these clouds. So when we talked about Mercury, we talked about the Goldilocks zone being either at the latitude or longitude where uh, the temperature wasn't so extreme that theoretically life could survive. In, in Venus, because it's a pressure cooker, instead of the latitude or longitude, we're actually talking about elevation where it's survived. That's exactly right. And so that, that Goldilocks zone on Venus is between 53 and 60 kilometers off the surface. So it, that is the range in which the temperature is such that you're not 
in a convection oven essentially. And you talked about the, um, you talked about the compounds that are, that we have recently detected and observed in Venus's atmosphere. And there's one that's really interesting. That's phosphine. So phosphine, what is in the last month, this was detected in the atmosphere of Venus. It's very recently. I think it was detected much earlier than that. The, the, the scientific paper came out within the past month. What's interesting about phosphine is it's uh, it's lethal to uh, organisms that depend on oxygen. So it's actually one of the original gases that was used in World right. War I. Uh, for chemical warfare. Um, but in addition to being lethal to organisms that respirate oxygen, it is a byproduct of organisms that do not require oxygen, at least here on Earth. And the team of scientists that published the paper that you were talking about, they worked backwards, essentially. So they tried to account for every other known process that could create phosphine in the atmosphere at this level and basically disproved all of them, leaving only that it could be a byproduct of biology. In a sense, Jason, what they did was say, well, because of all these other things aren't true, then this must be true, which is a... Counterfactual, counterfactual, it's counterfactual. <laughs> <laughs> So what do you what do you think about that, Jason? What do you think about this hypothesis that because we can't explain it any other way, that the phosphine in Venus's atmosphere must be a byproduct of biology, thus life? So I really want to make a, a judgment, stupid or not stupid on this, but the fact of the matter is these findings are so new, all it does is beg for more evidence, right? The the problem with Venus uh is that we haven't sent a spacecraft there since the nineties, and that was well, no, not not we. I mean the Russians, right? Oh no, no, the Russians. It's forty years since right. it's actually something's penetrated the surface right. or the right. atmosphere. I'm sorry. Yeah, the we we sent the the Magellan craft there, and but it flew by, right? Only only Russia has landed Correct. on Venus, allegedly. Yeah, well, allegedly. <laughs> I mean, they did send photos, and they were very pretty photos. Uh, that said, the Venus community, the Venus science community in the United States, and quite frankly globally, uh, has suffered from a dearth of information for a very long time. As a result, my recollection is that this paper was based on Earth-based observations. They, this came from Earth telescopes, not a, a space mission. The problem with that is that the information has so many filters that it has to go through that it's difficult to really ascertain what you're looking at. Uh, I found the paper compelling. It was peer-reviewed uh, by people who would, who would know far better than I. Uh, that said, it's a very tantalizing suggestion that we need to to send more missions out there to get much better data. I'm just hoping that the biology existing within the clouds of Venus is the space whales from the Star Wars universe <laughs> that you know I hate so much. So that makes perfect yeah, sense, right? We're going to find mean, Ezra from Rebels. <laughs> yeah. And and you're going to randomly hyperspace jump and be right in the middle of a fight of like a whole herd of them, just like in our favorite Star Wars movie, Rise of Skywalker. No, I got to say, uh, this was a concept that has been around for a long time. There have been a bunch of astrobiologists that have suggested that the conditions at, on Venus in the clouds could be conducive to life. And this has been laughed at pretty roundly by an awful lot of, of serious scientists for a very long time. And as a result, I really thought that this was just kind of pie in the sky. And then this paper comes out and all of a sudden everybody goes, oh, wait. So stupid-ish? I think I would go with potentially not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a soundbite there that we're going to have to recycle for future episodes. All right. Uh, next planet, Jason, what is it? 
Um, let me see. After Venus, wow, that's a tough one. Uh, I'm pretty sure we all live there. <laughs> Terra Nova. So the uh, the, ne- the next planet is uh, Earth. The atmosphere is one atmosphere. It is one AU from the sun. It is 100% the size of Earth. <laughs> what are the connections? Just to show that all of our measurements are really like really centered on our own lives. Yeah, like, we're very uh, Terra centric yes. in the solar system. So. The fact that we call it Earth and we call ground on other planets Earth. Like- <laughs> <laughs> so because it's uh, not interesting to discuss whether uh, life is uh, possible and or exists on Earth. What we're going to do is look within the Earth system. And this is something we're going to have to do when we get to the outer solar system as well. So we're going to look at the Earth's moon. Obviously, uh, the moon is the only other body in the solar system where human beings have stepped foot. Uh, Obviously, when the Apollo astronauts uh, landed on the moon, they looked for life. Uh, They only found cow skeletons, uh, the ones that (laughs) couldn't make it over. Um, so that was really sad. So no life on the moon is so far as they could. And discern. according to the movie Apollo 18, they also found some uh, uh, dead Soviet astronauts who were infected by some kind of life that then took them over as well. I haven't I haven't watched it yet. It's been on my uh, it's been saved on my watch list forever. For a movie that was made for like a dollar ninety five, it's actually quite good. How do you make a movie in space on a low budget? I mean, unless it's entirely filmed like within a spacecraft, like there, there's like a threshold of special effects, right? That you have Give to Give me meet. a break. This is exactly what NASA did in the sixties. <laughs> <laughs> had Kubrick, man. They had Kubrick. That's right. It was a much bigger budget. <laughs> yeah. All right. So just real quick, the moon's about a quarter the size of the earth, basically no atmosphere. The temperature fluctuates between 250 degrees and minus 208 degrees Fahrenheit. According to, uh, like I said, chat room arguments, which is what I'm basing uh, all of the science on this portion of this episode on, uh, if you held your breath, so if you already had breath in your lungs, you could live between 30 to 60 seconds on the surface of the moon if you were in the temperate zone. So if you're in the zone that is in that Goldilocks area between the 250 degrees and the minus 208, if you were uh, on the cold side, your lungs and internal organs would freeze immediately and cellular activity would cease. If you were on the hot side, your eyeballs would melt and the rest of your internal organs yeah, shortly. You would look after. like that guy from uh, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Exactly. That's what I thought. Of. That's exactly what I pictured. So the other issue, we were talking about uh, Mercury being tidally locked, meaning that the one side faced the sun and the other side never faced the sun. The moon is also tidally locked, but it's, it's tidally locked to the earth. So you hear people talk about like the dark side of the moon. In fact, the dark side of the moon is just the back side of the moon. It actually faces the sun half of the month. Uh, so there is no point on the moon uh, other than the poles uh, that doesn't see sunlight at some point. Yeah. And, and the leading theory is that the moon was created when something else, something large collided with Earth. With the proto-Earth, yeah. The debris that was left over, captured by the Earth's gravity, and solidified into the moon. So as the adolescent moon evolved, it looked a lot different than it does today. And conditions on the moon could have theoretically actually been suitable to life for a very short period of time. So we know that there was a point in time when the moon was geologically active. We know there was a point in time where there was volcanism on the moon. Those two processes could have combined for a short amount of time to create an atmosphere that would have created a very small window that would have allowed liquid water to exist on the surface of the moon for a period between, you know, no time to about 500 million years is the best is, is the best estimate that I could see. Um, is that enough time for life to evolve? I don't know. Um, but there was a short window 
potentially in the moon's history where life could have evolved so on the surface. There are other aspects here as well. We know that there is water on the surface of the moon in the form of, of, of water ice. Uh, some of it is in these sort of perennially dark craters similar to, to Mercury. Is that where those Nazi bases are where Hitler escaped? Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> Nazis need water too. And so that's probably where their bases were. Uh, there's also a lot of uh, water within the regolith uh, just sort of frozen into the, the sand on on the surface of the moon. What's also interesting is uh, when the astronauts from the Apollo mission brought soil back for, or brought dirt, brought, you know, uh, earth. brought earth back from the moon, <laughs> uh, it's been tested. You could literally like – plant things in this soil. You can plant potato or potatoes or tomatoes or whatever you want in this soil. And there's enough nutrient to actually allow these things to grow. That said, uh, between the radiation environment on the moon, uh, the fact that it doesn't really have, it, it has like some form of an atmosphere, but not enough of an atmosphere to keep the radiation environment basically negligible. The temperature variations, and and as you said, the time period uh, during which there may have been something close, more closely resembling a, a habitable environment on the moon. Uh, it was just, I think, far too short from our understanding of how life have, has evolved on Earth. And we should probably say something about this as well. We're, this, is, this discussion of, of what life looks like is completely Earth-centric, but it has to be because it's the only observation that we have to work with. But this is why the moon is one of the most interesting candidates as part of this discussion, because just because life couldn't have evolved there doesn't mean there's not life there. And this is more applicable to the moon than anywhere else because it's the place that humans have been. It's the only place we know that other life forms have traveled. And I think we talked about, I can't even remember which episode it was, but we, we talked about planetary protection and NASA having a planetary protection officer. And that's not uh, someone who flies out and deflects asteroids. Uh, from hitting this the is Earth, not a member rather, of Space Force. Right? <laughs> yeah, it's, it is not a rank in Space Force. It's instead a, a scientist whose job is dedicated to making sure that we don't infect other bodies in our solar system. Or with, bring back infections to the Earth. Or vice versa, exactly. And that uh, that may be what, what we've done with the moon. So setting the Apollo missions aside, in 2019, an Israeli spacecraft actually crashed on the moon. And part of the payload on the spacecraft was uh, a container of several thousand tardigrades. Are, are you familiar with tardigrades, Jason? They're, very, they're one of the smallest uh, complex organisms on the planet. That's right. And they're also considered the hardiest organisms on the planet. They can pretty much live in any environment, inside a volcano, in a tar pit, the bottom of the Mariana Trench, in Antarctica. They can pretty much survive everywhere. They are the second hardiest life form after Keith Richards. I, Keith Richards just got burned twice in two weeks. Sorry, Keith. I know you're listening. So what tardigrades can do when they're introduced into an extreme environment where even they aren't able to survive, they can instantly dehydrate themselves and go into a form of suspended animation that's kind of like turning yourself into a seed. So they turn themselves into this hardened shell. It's They're, they're still totally alive. It's basically hibernation. And as soon as they come in contact with moisture again, they reanimate. And just continue on like nothing ever happened. And we have to believe that the tardigrades that crashed on the moon did exactly that and are just sitting there. Is it stupid or not stupid to say that if there are tardigrades on the moon that have gone into hibernation in a state of suspended animation that are sitting there right now, is there life on the moon, Jason? So 
plausibly yes, but that's I think that that's a, a loophole in the conversation that we're having, right? That's clearly life from Earth that we took there. That doesn't count as life elsewhere in 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 the solar system. I disagree. You're stupid. <laughs> well, the idea that we can just export life all over the solar system and then claim that there are aliens is also stupid. Uh, <laughs> luckily, we're not going to have to address that because there's very few places uh, once we get past the next planet that we've actually been. So we're not going to have to. Argue. Right. Yeah. This is basically the only. Well, one more. The, the next one and then we're good. No, there's one more after that. Uh, we'll get we'll get to it. Yeah. Let me let me educate you, Jason. Just pay attention. All right. Try to keep up. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to say not stupid life on the moon based off based off the technicalities, uh, based on the loopholes that as Jason called them. That uh, I, I don't think that there was enough taken there. And I think that the radiation environment is such that it outweighs the rest of the capabilities of those particular life forms to withstand it. So I'm going to say stupid. I'm just a big tardigrade fan. I'm thinking about getting a tardigrade ca- tattoo, the whole deal. I'm all in on team tardigrade. So I'm going to say not stupid. All right, so with uh, with our tardigrade brothers just uh, chilling on the surface of the moon, I don't know if it's the dark side or the light side or not. So I don't know if we can like give them. A sh- I don't know if we can transmit this to them. They might be out of radio contact, so they'll never know the props we've given them for uh, being the first colonists on the moon. But and I like that the dark side and the light side harkens all the way back to our first episode. <laughs> so it's it's time to leave the tardigrades behind, and and we're on to Mars. So probably the planet in our solar system people are the most familiar with, besides the one we're sitting on right now. It's uh, roughly half the size of Earth. The temperatures fluctuate as high as 70 degrees Fahrenheit. So yeah, if you're like a foot and a half off the the ground. Yeah, uh, to as as low as uh, minus 200 degrees Fahrenheit. If you're two feet off the ground. (laughs) (laughs) A day is almost equal to an Earth day, but a year is twice as long. Feels like my life in quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) The, The pressure is about a thousand times less than on Earth. Um, so if you were already holding your breath, you, you would never be able to get one in there. You could theoretically live on the surface of Mars, uh, depending on the temperature zone you're in, as long as you could hold your breath. Uh, however, you, you'd likely lose consciousness after about 15 seconds, and it'd be pretty hard to hold your breath after that. Right. Uh, and uh, chances are your ankles would be very warm, but your eyeballs would freeze because the the, the lack of pressure, the lack of atmosphere on Mars means that the temperature differentiation is massively different, like within a six to 12 inch area. And the assumption is that you'd also be making the same noises that Arnold Schwarzenegger makes on the surface as his eyeballs pop out of his head. And he... Right. But nobody could hear it because the atmosphere is so thin. Well, <laughs> you can't hear this, Jason. The other thing that's interesting about Mars, it's the only planet that we're aware of that's entirely populated by robots. That's right. Yeah. We we have done a great job of uh, eliminating human jobs by sending robots in to do a, <laughs> a, to do a person's job. And it's actually sad too, because it, it's exciting. Mars was previously the only other body in our solar system that was a host to life. It was entirely populated by cats, but the Curiosity <laughs> rover killed them all. <laughs> I love how you saw where that joke was going before I finished it. You were laughing oh, before man. I got it out, Jason. Oh, that was awful. You know how long I've been sitting on that one? Oh, man. <laughs> it's a good thing you have a son because you need dad jokes. <laughs> so look, Mar- Mars isn't a dead planet, even though all the cats are dead now. Uh, <laughs> it's a planet that died. So Mars, because of its smaller size in comparison to Earth and its lack of a global magnetic field, 
had its atmosphere stripped away while the Earth has been able to maintain its atmosphere. And so that's where we get the difference between what Mars used to look like, which is a little bit closer to what Earth looks like now, and what it looks like today. NASA has, has focused on Mars my entire life from an astrobiology standpoint, uh, looking for signs of life because Mars is so similar in so many ways to Earth. Uh, what's interesting, we were talking about comparative planetology earlier, uh, Mars and Venus, they're kind of the opposite poles of how we understand uh, global warming on our own planet. Venus has this runaway gas uh, uh, greenhouse atmosphere because of all the carbon dioxide. Mars, on the other hand, started out with an atmosphere, but then lost its magnetic field, and the sun has slowly stripped away its entire atmosphere. So that's what it looks like if you don't have protection, if you don't have an atmosphere that protects you from the sun's radiation, whereas Venus is what happens if you have an atmosphere that protects you way too much right, from, from the radiation because it just traps it all in, in within your planet. The interesting thing about Mars is that we've, we've shown that it once had a magnetic field uh, with the MAVEN mission that NASA launched. We also know from several of the rovers, uh, from the the MER, uh, Spirit and Opportunity, from uh, Curiosity now. Uh, we've been following the water on Mars. Uh, the, the first rovers, the first rover, of course, was Sojourner, which was just a, a technology demonstration. I think that's more of an impactor than a rover. No, Sojourner. <laughs> oh, no. What's uh, uh, Pathfinder? Pathfinder was essentially. Pathfinder was the lander that carried the Sojourner rover. So okay. it didn't move, but the Sojourner rover ran around and like this was like 1996 and it was about a shoebox sized thing that took a couple of pictures and was was one of the first uh memes on the web right like this was it was the the largest watched thing on the internet in 1996 but it basically just took pictures it didn't do a whole lot of science at the time the the pathfinder did some some weather uh, stuff but most the mission was primarily a technology demonstration so the uh, the Mars Exploration Rovers, Spirit and Opportunity, landed on two landed at two different sites on Mars, and demonstrated that water clearly had existed in a liquid form on the planet and was flowing most likely and, on the surface. Exactly. So they'd landed uh, one near uh, sort of a river outlet and one in a, a dried lake bed, uh, and they found uh, chemical processes that could only really have happened in an aqueous environment. Uh, then we have flown Curiosity there. Curiosity is the the Mars 2020 rover uh, has found tons of evidence demonstrating that not only did water exist, but it existed in a form that could have allowed for life to form. It was there long enough. It was there cleanly enough. And we already know that there are nutrients available on Mars, that there are uh, energy forms. There was tectonic activity. In fact, that it's likely that that's what happened to the atmosphere of Mars uh, was that the tectonic activity stopped because the core may have frozen. It, we know uh, from geologic sampling that there was tectonic activity that no longer exists to any significant degree. And that correlates with the findings that we got from the MAVEN rover that show that that's when 
the, the you know the magnetic field disappeared and the, the atmosphere started to be stripped away by by solar rays. So we know the conditions for life existed on Mars probably more definitively than we can say anywhere else in the solar system. I think that's exactly correct. And not only existed but existed for a considerable period of time. Yeah, long enough for erosion to take place for there to be ge- geologically observable consequences of the water being there that we can still see today, right? Okay, so we, we, we know it's possible that life could have evolved on Mars. We know that if it had evolved, uh, that the habitat was capable of sustaining, sustaining it. it. Okay, so could it still be there today? This is the question. This is how we're going to decide, stupid or not stupid. Right. So what we're seeing on Mars now, there are a couple of interesting aspects. So we've seen phenomena in craters on Mars where the walls of the craters seem to show some kind of liquid seeping out of the walls of the crater. So there, uh, there's a lot of evidence that demonstrates that this may be ice that is uh, within the surface of Mars that melts due to seasonal warming and then leaks down the side of the crater, but then immediately either evaporates because of the low pressure or refreezes into the, the soil. More recent studies have sort of cast some doubt on that. It's not entirely certain that that's correct. Uh, There have also been some really interesting findings from a spectroscopic standpoint. It was first Earth-based spectroscopy, but then was uh, confirmed both by an orbiter and by Curiosity that there were methane plumes that were happening on Mars. So methane is often associated with biological processes. You have to tell me that I've been in the same room with you for the past 45 minutes. <laughs> yet, an, yet another really long ongoing joke. <laughs> you know, I was eating at uh, Dos Amigos. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Taco Tuesday again, yeah, didn't exactly. you, Jason? Um, but these plumes have been really interesting because they, they show up and it's not really associated with any kind of a seasonal thing. They appear for a couple of days and then they disappear and the source is still unknown. Now, there are also geologic processes that create uh, forms of methane on Earth. Because Mars is not very geologically active, that's a little tougher to buy. Unfortunately, the isotope of methane that keeps appearing is not the type of methane that you would associate with biology on Earth. So it's less likely that that's what's happening, and it's probably some kind of a geological geologic cause, but we we don't have an explanation. So it's not tardigrade farts. That's exactly right. Yeah. So more than that, uh, if you remember back in the early 90s, there was a meteorite that was discovered in Antarctica. We've seen it. You and I have held right. it. Yeah. yeah. Which was pretty cool. Yeah. In which uh, a team of scientists uh, posited that they had found what may be fossilized remnants of biological activity of small microorganisms on Mars. Now, this is incredibly controversial. I think that the vast majority of the, I would say the large majority of the scientific community doesn't find this evidence particularly compelling for a number of very good reasons. So I don't know, like, I don't think that that's actually evidence that life existed on Mars at any, at any point, but it's still not a decisive uh, claim one way or the other. As Carl Sagan used to say, if you're going to claim that there's life on an, another planet, strong claims require strong evidence. Needless to say, this is not extraordinary evidence, right? It's there, there are a lot of very, very good reasons to question it. That said, you know, when we landed the Viking landers on Mars, each of the land, there were two landers that landed, each of them were equipped with three experiments 
to try and determine if there was biological activity in the soil on Mars. At the end of the day, uh, one of them was inconclusive and the other two uh, turned out negative. But the other two experiments both required the addition of water to the soil. And what we now know about the soil of Mars is that it's sort of rife with this chemical known as a perchlorate that if you add water to it would destroy any any light, uh, any biological material. So it's unlikely that there was any biological material, but the study alone would have destroyed it if there were any. And the third test that didn't use the water was inconclusive. What about under the surface? So we know water flowed on the surface. Could it still exist under the surface? And could life that was on the surface at some point been a precursor to what still exists today? So I'm thinking about, you know, extremophiles that live in the mantle of the earth now that are, you know, evolved because of life on the surface. Life didn't originate in the mantle, but it's penetrated that deep because things have evolved and had the opportunity to get into the mantle of the earth. Oh, yeah. Uh, we've seen this kind of life in like the Antarctic and the Arctic, yeah. like yeah. very deep into the permafrost, deep into the, the soil. Um, sure, that's entirely plausible. However, if you look at the life cycle of those organisms on earth, it required a a, a much longer runway for life to evolve to allow those things to become that adapted to such an extreme environment. So could it have happened quicker on Mars? Sure, I, it's possible. We go back to the discussions we had about you know the, the octopus stuff in a, a previous episode. It, it's a probability issue, right? Like it's, it's a low probability that it could have happened that fast, but it's not impossible. I think the other one you were trying to connect to was our Bigfoot episode. You're saying no evidence is, is evidence in and of right. itself, yes, exactly. Jason. Now, I, I don't think that there's probably uh, microbial life on Mars today. Uh, I think what we're actually looking for is something along the lines of a stromatolite uh, formation. Uh, it would be fossil evidence of life back when Mars was habitable. But I don't put it past Bigfoot to have gone to Mars too. <laughs> so stu stupid or not stupid, Jason, make a call. Get off the fence. I think that it's not stupid that we find evidence of previous life on Mars, but I don't think that there's probably life there now. But it's not stupid to say that there might be because this is the place where we can look at and say life could have existed here. I would say that in our solar system, it is one of the three most likely places uh, that we will find life. Okay, so not not stupid. Not stupid. Okay. All right. Well, now now we're going to, in any one jump, we're going to travel as far as we've traveled so far, and we're going to head to Jupiter. And this is where we get into an interesting conundrum, because for a little bit here, we're going to be dealing with planets that essentially have no surface, or at least so far as we understand it, um, or either in forms of matter that we cannot comprehend. So... Uh, Jupiter is a gas giant. What's a gas giant, Jason? It's basically me after Taco <laughs> Tuesday. No, a, a gas giant is a planet that uh, has has formed out of uh, chemical components that are not solids. Right? It's a giant ball of gas, but it's such a large volume of this gas that it's created its own. You know the mass of this planet is, has its own gravitational pull that has resulted in it being a circular mass that actually you know with Jupiter it's a it's a gas giant so it exerts enough gravitational pull on things around it that you have moons uh, that become circular themselves that 
arguably, if they were not in the orbit of Jupiter, if they were in the orbit of the sun, would probably be considered planets in and of themselves. So they create their own systems. And so in the case of Jupiter, we call it the Jovian system. There are uh, dozens of moons in the Jovian system. There's four principal moons. And there's one that we're going to, I think, focus on for the purposes of our discussion. Uh, and that's probably uh, the uh, the playboy of the life candidates these days. <laughs> that's right. Yes. Yeah. It's a very sexy topic in astrobiology at the moment. Yes. And, and that's Europa. So I'll just, get, I'll just give you the quick hits on Europa. So it's about one third the size of Earth, uh, but could have up to three times the liquid water on it that Earth has. Uh, the average temperature is a, a crisp negative 260 degrees Fahrenheit. It's also the uh, smoothest object in our solar system after, of course, Jason's butt after a visit to the local wax shop. Smooth and shaved. <laughs> <laughs> uh, pressures on Europa are uh, similar to the moon, but with no temperate zone. Um, so you'd be dead in uh, probably about 15 seconds. So if we give you 60 seconds on the moon with a temperate zone, let's just say, uh, yeah, you got about 15 seconds with a lung full of oxygen uh, to live on the surface of Europa. And the radiation on the surface is so high as it is in other places, but particularly bad at Europa. Even if you survived those 15 seconds and somebody pulled you back into a spacecraft, you'd be dead of cancer within a week. Yeah, it's like episode four of Chernobyl probably is your is your outcome, yeah. So what's really interesting about Europa is that it has a, a an elliptical orbit around Jupiter that brings it in uh, really close to Jupiter's extreme gravity, which compresses it, squeezes it tight, and then as Europa slings back out in its elliptical orbit, and when we say elliptical, we mean, it, we mean it gets really close at one end and goes really far out at another end. And that allows it to relax and become totally spherical again. It's kind of like uh, squishing a a cup full of ice, right? It turns it into a slushy. It's much like Matt's belly after all of the coronavirus eating he's been doing. <laughs> Look, I only I only do it for gains, bro. I'm just cultivating mass before I turn it into muscle. <laughs> <laughs> I could have called it a gas tank for a sex machine, but <laughs> So that, that continual process of squeezing and contracting that we see at Europa does something really interesting with all of the water ice or the water, the, the, the H2O that exists in this celestial body. On the surface, we have a, a solid ice global cap, I, I guess is the best way to describe a it. Mantle. A mantle. Yeah. Sure. Okay, so a solid ice mantle that is kilometers thick on average, I think is the guess. Estimated to be somewhere between 14 and 40 kilometers thick. The last estimates I saw, that those have probably been revised recently. But not everywhere. And that's what's interesting about this. There's a reason that Europa is the smoothest object in the solar system, because Europa is not immune from impacts. It's getting hit by things. But liquid water, the theory is that liquid water is able to come up through cracks in the ice and is filling in impact craters on the surface, and that's why it's so smooth. And there's not really another good explanation for this. There's a high probability that this is what's happening on Europa. The evidence for a liquid ocean underneath the icy mantle uh, is increasingly compelling. Uh, I, I, at this point, I think it's pretty much incontrovertible that that's what's going on. But what's really interesting about this is it's not just the tectonic effects on the surface that are telling us you know that the 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 surface is basically recreating itself by freezing over the craters what's far more interesting is that this motion around jupiter is affecting what appears to be a rocky core at the center of this moon that is like the core is not large enough to to have a molten center in the way that the earth does 
that would create tectonic activity. But this is basically the warping of this moon as it circles this giant gravity well of Jupiter is creating uh, enough energy to artificially impact it in a way that that replicates tectonic effects. This is what's interesting because we said earlier, it's about follow the water, right? So where you find water, you find life. That's only really part of the equation. When you water is the most important factor so far as we understand it, but on Earth, where we have water, we have we have the potential for life. But where we have water, contact with a silicate base, so a, a, a rocky surface, and energy, there's nowhere we don't find life where you have those three things. Yeah, uh, and the silicate base was what I was using the term nutrients, but that's exactly what I was talking about. And uh, and the energy is the other factor. And it, it's got to be you talk about energy from the sun, and if you're just getting full radiation from the sun the type of energy that you're getting is is much too high a frequency like it's just damaging to to cells and it doesn't allow for chemical interaction but if you're talking about heat energy generated from gravity underneath an ice core that's keeping you, keeping you insulated from the radiation and you have the chemicals that allow for uh, biological processes to begin, and you have the solvent, which is this water that apparently is actually salty. We've seen, you know, as you said, there there are these cracks that form, and we've been able to do spectroscopic analysis of the stuff that has washed onto the surface of Europa. We have a, a relatively decent understanding of what the chemicals are in this ocean. Man, all the ingredients are there. It gets even more interesting because in the last decade or so. We have observed environments on Earth that are basically completely analogous to what you would expect to find under the three conditions that you just named, right? We're talking about vents at the deepest part of our ocean where the only energy provided is essentially the energy from geological processes within the planet, a silicate base, and water as a solvent. And at those points, at those hydrothermic vents, we find life all over it, teeming with life. And it's exactly the same environment that we would expect to find on Europa based off the observation of those three points that we just mentioned. And there's one aspect of that life that we found during... So these these uh, hydrothermal vents that, that Matt's talking about, the other factor about that that's really interesting is the life that we're finding there. When we go back and we look at the DNA of this life, it seems as though this may have this life may have actually generated separately from surface life so it's like a secondary generation of biological processes life everywhere else on the planet is dependent on energy that comes from the sun so it you know you're getting photosynthesis or you're eating plant-based life or you're eating other things that got their energy f- through solar energy these life forms seem to have actually evolved based on the energy from geothermal processes completely separate. It's not like they evolved on the surface and then sunk to the bottom of the sea and then figured out a new way of surviving at the bottom of the sea. They seem to have actually evolved independently. And if that's the case, then the possibility that that's happening on Europa increases tremendously. So- Stupid or not stupid, life in the Jovian system around Jupiter on a moon. I I got to say, so on Earth, we have mapped the chemical processes that would lead to life as we know it. And there are about 165 different ways that you could have gotten there. 
And given the chemical makeup that we know exists on Europa at the moment, there are somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 of those pathways that are viable. So given that, you know, we don't know how likely it is that life starts we do, because we've only got a, a sample size of one. Given that much smaller uh, pathway to get to life, it's less likely that it happened. But of all the places that we're, we've been looking in the, in the solar system, I think that Europa is number one, maybe number two, most interesting, most not stupid. <laughs> but number one for life right now. Uh, again, well, we'll get to this in, the, in a minute in the conversation. I think that this is still probably number two. All right. I'm going to say not stupid just because I, I love Europa. I love talking about it. I love explaining it to people at the bar who have their minds blown. Europa is literally my favorite thing to talk about. So I'm, you'll never get me to say Europa. Don't get me stupid. wrong. Like Europa is fascinating. Yeah. And I'm so thrilled that we're actually sending a spacecraft out there called Europa Clipper that will launch in 2026 or 2024. <laughs> It's going to be on the same payload as uh, James Webb. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. No, it's not because yeah. Webb's going to be delayed much longer than that. <laughs> if you're laughing at that, that probably means we want to hang right. out with you. If you got that joke, please write to us. We want to be your friend. Come hang out. <laughs> so anyway, so that's Europa. And we're moving on to what is the next planet? It, it's uh, actually, it's, I don't know if you're aware of this, Jason. The next planet is God's favorite planet. Do you, do you know why it's God's favorite planet? Because it's named after the king of the gods. Oh, no, that was Jupiter. No, that was Jupiter. He's actually in love with it. That's why he put a ring on it. <laughs> nice. Actually, it turns out that he put like 47 or 165. <laughs> like, I don't even remember what the final count is these days. We're, we're at Saturn, yeah. So uh, it's the same situation with Saturn. Uh, gas giant, no surface. So we can't even look at the planet, but we can look at the planetary system. So before we get to the uh, the moon of Saturn that I want to talk about, let's do an honorable mention. So uh, Enceladus. Yes. So this is the one that I think is actually number one. It has all of the same aspects as uh, Europa. The difference is we've actually flown a spacecraft, the Cassini spacecraft, through water plumes coming out of the, the moon and have taken measurements of the, the chemical makeup of the water below the surface. So with Europa, we think that we have seen plumes coming out of the surface where we know that water is, is rushing out through cracks, but we've not actually witnessed it. So the stuff that we're seeing on the surface, you know, the information that we have is secondary. Like we're pretty sure that it's conclusive, but we haven't actually seen the thing. At Enceladus, we absolutely have. We have seen the plumes coming out. We photographed them. We've flown through them. We know what's what's in the water. And all of the chemicals that are necessary for life are there. Now, the, the problem with Enceladus is it's even further out than Europa, and Saturn is smaller than Jupiter. The benefit of that is you have less of a radiation issue at Enceladus than you have at Europa. But the downside of that is the gravity well in which it's interacting and its orbit are not as dramatic as they are at Europa. And Enceladus is much smaller than Europa. So it becomes an issue of, is there enough energy there? Is there actually a rocky core? We don't know those. We don't necessarily know those answers. There, there's a lot of compelling evidence indicating that the, it's a really inter interesting place to look for life. But the simple fact that we actually know the chemical makeup of the water, I think, makes it far more interesting. 
Okay, but it, it it's similar enough to Europa that we don't need to discuss it again. But we'll say not stupid for all the same reasons we Correct. said Europa wasn't yeah. stupid. Okay, but there's there, there's another moon in that neighborhood that's exciting, and that moon is uh, is Titan. So we're gonna do an an early worst stupid edition and point out that Jason was wrong that it, Mars was not the last place where we have landed in the solar system because we've actually landed oh, on Titan with the, Huygens probe. with the Huygens probe. With the Huygens probe, so we have landed somewhere beyond Mars. Uh, only one place in that our solar system, and that and that's Titan. So Titan is a moon of Saturn. Nature's gas station. <laughs> that, <laughs> Yeah, so after Jason, this is our solar system's greatest gas station. It's forty uh, percent the size of Earth. It's actually larger than Mercury, right? Which is interesting. So the, a moon of Saturn that's larger than a planet in our solar system. It's the only object in our solar system with liquid on the surface, and I think we can say that pretty definitively that it's the only place where we can find a liquid on a surface, other than Earth. Yes, other other than Earth. Yeah, and that that liquid is actually in the form of methane. That's right. So Titan is dotted with methane lakes. Uh, it has an atmospheric pressure, actually pretty comparable to Earth. Uh, its atmosphere is 95% nitrogen, 5% methane. So based on that, you'd actually survive on the surface just long enough to take one breath if you, if you didn't already have breath in your lungs. So I guess we want to be <laughs> consistent here. So let's pretend you already have breath on your lungs. Uh, but if you could breathe in, uh, your lungs would freeze instantly. But because of the comparable uh, atmospheric pressure between Titan and Earth, uh, you wouldn't explode or implode like many of the other uh, places that would. Well, that's a yeah. So at least your body would be recoverable, yeah. I guess. In yeah. sense. On, on the downside, that last breath that you took would be the worst smell you had ever, <laughs> ever inhaled. So w- what's really interesting about Titan is, uh, like we already said, it, it ha- does have liquid on the surface. So there is an interesting conversation to be had that is it liquid water that is incredibly important for life, or is it just liquid as a solvent that is needed? That's exactly right. Yeah, so now we're getting into the further reaches of the concepts of astrobiology. We know what life looks like on Earth. Is that the only model in which life could possibly exist? Are there other forms of life that could be dependent on different chemicals than the eight that we use on Earth? And could you use something other than water as a solvent? And that becomes more interesting when you start changing temperature and pressure gradients on other planets. So could meth or could methane be used as the solvent to allow for self-replication in chemicals that become what we recognize as life? We don't know. We've never seen it before, but that's because the chemistry only works one way on Earth. So Titan is a really interesting place to go and examine that. I think that the likelihood is low, but that's with a huge margin of error in understanding or a, a margin of uncertainty in understanding whether or not that's possible. So it's worth mentioning that when scientists have looked at this and they they look at alternatives for water, they say methane is probably the most likely candidate to be a replacement or a stand-in from water uh, for life as we understand it, not not as we know it. Also, I don't know if you did you play Halo? Are you a Halo player, Jason? <laughs> did you at least play the original? Was that I'm familiar was that around? with the game? So, <laughs> so the uh, the the grunts in uh, Halo, which are the uh, it's a uh, one headshot with the pistol, you can take them out. They are they evolved as a methane-based life form, and uh, I don't know if everyone knows this. That's why they have masks. They have respirators on their back, and they're breathing methane. So, I mean, if they're part of the covenant, then I, I assume that it's I think, yeah. Suddenly, this is very plausible. Yeah, so not stupid immediately <laughs> off the bat. So, really interestingly, uh, we're about to send in. So it won't launch until twenty. 
2026. In terms of planetary science, that's really soon. Um, we're going to launch a mission called Dragonfly that's going to send I can't believe this got this selected is so or approved. This astonishing. It's like my favorite mission ever. We're basically sending the equivalent of a quadcopter to Titan. It's just going to fly around the planet and sample everything everywhere to try and find life. It's the best mission ever. And so when we think about that, when we envision methane-based life, when you try to map it out, the working theory is that methane-based life would respirate hydrogen instead of oxygen. So that that's how it has to work based right. on methane. So for a long time, people thought that the other solvent that might work would be something like hydrogen peroxide. But it turns out from a chemical standpoint that methane, if you can liquefy it, is chemically better. The problem is that to end up with liquid methane, you're talking about really low temperatures. So it becomes an issue of can you find the right catalysts to in, induce enough energy into the process, or is there some other kind of energetic process that will allow that to happen? This is why I'm a little more you know, circumspect about it, but I really hope it turns out to be cool. Scientists are basically game theorying this out. You theorize that if life was respirating on Titan, so if there was something breathing on Titan, based off conducting its cellular activity, based off methane as a solvent and respirating hydrogen, then you'd be able to measure a difference in hydrogen in the atmosphere, depending on the elevation that you were at. So hydrogen would be more prevalent higher up in the atmosphere than it was closer to the surface. We have observed that on Titan, hydrogen flows downhill, essentially. So the hydrogen levels, as predicted, so if you were going to say, this is the footprint for life on Titan, this is what it would look like, the hydrogen levels would be higher in the atmosphere, gradually decreasing as you get closer to the surface, and then disappearing at the surface. This is what you would look for. That is exactly what we see on Titan. That's exactly what we observed from the Huygens probe as it came down through the atmosphere. And this is exactly what we pick up from spectrometry, the times we've been able to look at it. So if you were going to say there's life on Titan, here's the footprint you'd have to look for to be able to say there's a chance it's possible. We've been able to observe that exact exactly. footprint. No, and that's why I'm I'm so thrilled about the Dragonfly mission. Well, on top of the fact that I know a couple of folks that work on it and it's I'm astonished that it was selected and really happy about it. This is going to be groundbreaking. Like the information that we get from that mission will change the way that we think about science and astrobiology completely, man, I, I can't wait. I'm, I'm really like, I'm most interested in what happens at Enceladus because I think that's most likely, but I'm most fascinated and cannot wait. Like my favorite upcoming mission is actually the Dragonfly film, the uh, so, Dragonfly mission. So, so I don't know if all of you heard uh, that very distracting uh, clinking that was taking place uh, while I was making my last point, but that was uh, that was Jason very rudely making a second drink, uh, which I'm doing now. So while, while Jason tops off, I'm going to throw one more out at you, buddy. This is going to be a caveat. It'll be a little different than the ones we've looked at. But so let's set the present aside and let's look at another scenario for Titan. So I, I read this really interesting article. It's theorized that conditions on Titan could actually become more habitable in the future. So we, we talked about this in our uh, end of the world episode. Our sun is going to continue to expand and grow. It'll eventually consume the earth and basically destroy everything in the inner solar system. So in roughly 6 billion years from now, our sun that uh, as we know it today will become what's, uh, what's referred to as a, a red giant star. At that point, Titan's temperature could increase enough 
for stable oceans to exist on the surface. So if that happens, conditions on Titan could be similar to Earth's, allowing conditions favorable to life. So I'm stretching it out now, but let's say possible, not stupid, that life exists on Titan now as we know it, but also not stupid in the future that life could still evolve. I think that's actually far less stupid than the idea that there's life on Titan now. And and I don't think that the idea that there's life on Titan now is entirely stupid. Well, I'm going to agree with you just based on the fact that you passed me the lime juice for my gin and tonic. <laughs> so I'm, uh, I'm all good on that. Because we just covered, I think, the one we were, I don't know, it seemed like we were the most excited about Titan for some reason, and we seemed to agree the most on it. So uh, now we need to move to the lamest one, unfortunately, which is, uh, which is Uranus. I'll just, I'll give you the quick uh, academic rundown. It's four times the size of Earth. It's our coldest planet at negative 224 degrees Celsius. It's so cold that it has ice in its atmosphere. You'd never make it to the surface. Uh, if we were going through our exercise here to see uh, how long you could survive, there is a surface, um, but you'd never make it there. And, and if we could teleport you there somehow, uh, you'd be crushed to death literally in a second uh, by the pressure. There's literally no feasible scenario in which uh, you could survive on the surface of Uranus or anything else could. And on top of all of that, I mean, in addition to its name, which is synonymous with asshole. I was about to say, honestly, I think the whole reason that the planet is that angry and inhospitable is because we named it that. <laughs> right. And it, it doesn't even have a moon. That's interesting. So at least in all of the planets so far that we've visited that have been inhospitable, Uranus doesn't even have a moon that we can look at. So what do we do here, Jason? It has a bunch of moons, but they all suck. They all suck. They're, everything about this place is yeah. terrible. So yeah, basically all I could do is make a Futurama joke about how, you know, in the year 3000, they changed the name from, you know, it's like, it's no longer called uh, Uranus or Uranus or Uranus as somebody tried to once call it. Uh, they changed the name to Erectum. <laughs> Anyways, let's move on. All right, we're just going to blow right by. Just just like Voyager, we're just we're out of here. <laughs> All right, so uh next we arrive at Neptune. I guess we should should we have this conversation now about nomenclature is Neptune the last planet? Uh, it's, I mean, it depends on what year you're talking about. Yeah. Okay, so let's get this out of the way. So we're going to sit we're talking about life in our solar system. So once we pass Neptune, whether it's a planet or not, I guess we're still in the solar system, but how should we refer to Neptune? Is, is Neptune the last planet, Jason? No. It is not. Uh, I agree. Yeah, Pluto's the Pluto's planet. planet. All right. Thank you. I think you. there are also 147 other planets, but maybe even more than that. But the nine planets should hold. <laughs> okay. So Neptune follows the same playbook as uh, the rest of the outer solar system planets. Or does it? Oh, you're giving yeah, me a look. The Jason. point that I was making is you were asking if it was the last planet. And actually, it depends on what orbital period you're talking about, because occasionally Neptune actually moves outside of the orbit of Pluto. I did not know that. Almost certain that that's true. It's been a long time since I looked at this, but I'm pretty sure that there is an orbital perturbation at some point where Pluto actually is within Neptune and, and then it moves back. So we have their stupid edition. We have war stupid edition. And I think we just saw the birth of war technical edition. So, <laughs> <laughs> so look, Neptune moved to the atmosphere, try to get to the, the small solid core that exists. Exact same situation as Uranus. Not going to happen. Not hospitable to life. Probably nothing to look at here. The one fascinating, well, there are many fascinating features about Neptune, but one of the most interesting is every other planet orbits with its axis basically pointing 90 degrees from the axis, uh, from the, the, the orbit of the sun. Neptune's axis points directly at the sun. 
So it spins in a circle where the North Pole of Neptune is pointing directly at the sun. So th- we actually forgot to talk about this with Venus. So let's point this out there. These are the two objects that rotate irregularly in our solar system. Venus does it because it's so much hotter on one side than the other that they're actually it actually creates a drag effect that slowed Venus down over time to the point where it stopped rotating and then started again in the opposite direction. And it's slowly speeding back up going the other way. With Neptune, I don't know, is it because of an impact? I I don't know if we've even looked. I don't have the answer to this. No, nobody does. We don't don't understand why it does that. Uh, We thought it was really unusual, but from exoplanet research, we're starting to see that this is actually not completely out, out of the ordinary, but it is very weird in our solar system. But I love the thing that you just said about Venus because it basically explains what happens if we just keep burning a bunch of coal and gasoline. Like- Eventually, the planet's just going to start spinning the other way. We'll, we'll be gone way before that, Jason. Oh, yeah. But, man, imagine if California was three hours ahead of us. <laughs> <laughs> so Neptune's not interesting to talk about, but in the Neptune system, we do have one moon that's a, a candidate here for life, and that's Triton. So Triton is an, an icy moon with an extremely young surface. So this is not sure if it's being refreshed or it just hasn't been around that long. We can't say definitively. So we're not sure if it's exactly the same as Europa, um, but it may be the second youngest surface in the solar system after only Io. And the reason Io surface is so young because uh, Io is essentially Mustafar from, <laughs> from Star Wars. It's one giant volcano planet covered in lava constantly. From the time I started this sentence to right now, the surface of Io has been refreshed. Yeah, like three times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Io is the angriest planet or angriest moon. So the the only contact we've had with Triton is the Voyager flyby, and it didn't have a an instrument to measure the the surface, the atmosphere, anything like that. In fact, Voyager discovered it. We didn't even know it was there until until Voyager blew by. But what from what we could observe from the the photos that we got. Um, and from the planetary dynamics that we can observe is that it's it's likely that Triton also has an ocean, a, a subsurface ocean like we see with Enceladus and with Europa. So we expect that the interior has melted to some degree, forming a liquid water ocean uh, that's likely still present today. But that, that, that's basically as far as it goes. We can guess based off of the, the, the photo evidence, the planetary dynamics that you know, there's something under the surface, but we basically know nothing about Triton. No, these suppositions are based on very little information that we have. And my understanding is that even if those suppositions were correct, this is a very small ocean under a very, very thick mantle and then a very inactive core. And then this liquid water would be very shallow. Like you're talking a couple of kilometers. Everything you just said just made me think of you, Jason, and your heart. So it's just a very, very small item. Hard, under cold, and yeah. shallow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, accurate. Anyways, uh, so this this ocean is far less interesting than Enceladus or Europa or, frankly, I think it's actually less interesting than the water on Mars or even the water uh, or uh, the water vapor at Venus. I just think it's so crazy to think about. This is the item we know basically the least about 
and it, it's likely that it has a liquid ocean and we're just dismissing it as uninteresting. But you pick that up and you put it in the inner solar system and all of a sudden it's the most interesting item in the solar system. So it's just so crazy to be dismissing liquid oceans as we fly by. Well, of course, the other issue is, uh, you know, we were talking about this idea of being very Earth centric in our, our concepts of life and concepts of uh, the other aspect of this is time, right? Like to get to Triton, to, to go and measure this stuff. If we started building those spacecraft today, you and I would not see this mission. Like by the time that information came back and was actually diagnosed, you and I would be retired or dead. <laughs> Jason, uh, with my high level of income and advances in modern science, there's no reason to believe that I can live two to 300 years. So <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. I'm fairly certain you're just a brain in a jar on yeah. Mars anyway. By the way, that was a Ricky Bobby quote. That wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't a, a Matt original. So uh, we tried to salvage Neptune. Not a whole lot we could do, but Triton's a possibility. And, uh, and oh, now, now we- Before we go any further, like we're talking about this ex- extensively from an astrobiology standpoint. There are a lot of other good reasons to go and t- check these planets out. Sure. Yeah. I, I just only care about life. That's right. So right now, yeah. So in the in that context, that's why we're shitting all over these outer worlds planets. But in fact, we should definitely go check them out. Anyhow, all right. So so now we're coming up to Pluto. We 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 established that Pluto is a planet. I'm uh, I'm glad we didn't kick them out. My relationship with them has always been platonic. So I don't think <laughs> platonic. <that>, yeah, <laughs> I don't think we need to get rid of them. Um, but uh, yeah, just the. Speaking of platonic, if we're going to do dating statistics here for uh, Pluto, it's uh, one-sixth the size of Earth, a cool negative 375 to negative 400. I actually found that interesting that Pluto's temperature doesn't fluctuate as much as uh, some of the other things we've looked at. It's it's pretty stable, um, and it, it goes around the Earth uh, once every 248 years. So um, <laughs> Happy birthday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if, if you get that terminal disease, like we talked about with Venus, maybe Pluto's another option. So, um, so originally... Pluto was thought to be way too cold uh, for liquid oceans because of its temperature and its age. Uh, it, it was theorized until very recently that any water on Pluto would have frozen solid long ago. So in order to maintain ocean, we knew Pluto would have had to retain heat inside itself. So we talked about you know Jupiter providing that catalyst on Europa. Something would have have to have been going on with Pluto to provide some sort of energy source to maintain a liquid ocean. That's exactly right. What may be going on, well, maybe what we should do is take a step back here. When we talked about Uranus and Neptune, we said we don't have good data because we haven't had very much interaction with them. Very recently, we had interaction with Pluto. Oh, phenomenal mission. Yeah, so maybe we should fill the gaps on that before I talk about what we learned. And So first of all, you were talking about this on a dating profile. I would totally swipe right on Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> You've never swiped on anything, Jason. Give me a break. <laughs> Neither have I. We're both we're both of a generation beyond. <laughs> I was married before any of that technology actually existed. Anyhow, um, long, long ago, it was very difficult to observe it because it was so far out. It took 20 or 25 years to finally get a mission to fly by it because neither of the Voyagers actually went past Pluto. So all we had were these really long distance observations. Like the best picture we had was from the Hubble t- telescope. And it was so far away that it was basically like 16 pixels of an observation. And that's what we had to, that was our knowledge of of this planet. And everyone sort of assumed that it was this giant block of ice. Maybe there were some rocks on it. It wasn't that interesting. It was out in the Uort cloud, which is just a bunch of, you know, detritus from the early formation of the 
the the galaxy or of the 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 solar system uh, it was all the stuff that didn't make it you know it was like these were the bands who didn't actually you know get signed right bitter much jason <laughs> <laughs> but we finally got this mission this astonishing mission uh new horizons to fly past pluto and normally a flyby mission doesn't give you a lot of information but this mission because it took so long to develop and because it was so well thought out the instruments were developed specifically to give us the maximum amount of information in a very short period of time. And the mission worked perfectly, it, which never happens, right? Like it, it, we got really lucky on this flyby because a lot of really talented people did a whole lot of really hard work. And what we found at Pluto was astonishing. It is a completely different planet than we would have thought that it was. The whole concept that it's a dwarf planet was belied by the fact that this this planet is tectonically active. It has oceans. It has mountains. When the first launch happened, there was a push for New Horizons to be launched because there was a concern that the atmosphere was actually collapsing and that it was going to disappear forever. And once we flew past it, what we found out is that the atmosphere expands and contracts due to these tectonic issues due to these thermal issues so far out that we didn't think these processes were even possible. So it reconfigured our entire way of thinking about planetary geology. It was fascinating. And one of the things we observed, I guess the main thing that people got excited about is the, is the big white heart. Yeah. So the big white heart was what it was all about. And that's what more or less, or at least to the degree possible, confirmed for us that there is a liquid ocean under the surface of Pluto. So it doesn't have access to a, a heat source. It doesn't have something that it's orbiting that is providing uh, the gravity to expand and contract it like some of the other satellites that we've looked at. So what's happening on Pluto to maintain that ocean? And the best theory that we have so far is that Pluto's, I guess, mantle, I, the intermediate area underneath its, its surface, between its surface and its core, is being insulated and heated by a layer of gas. So it's probably a layer of methane, um, and it's coming from the cracking of organic material in Pluto's core, and it's keeping the, the theorized subsurface ocean warm. Um, so it could take the form of uh, gas hydrates or so a crystalline ice-like solids, um, but they're, they're trapped within these water cages, and it's providing insulation. And the theory is that as these things break apart, the energy that's being released from that creates a layer of insulation and energy that liquefies the water that's under the surface of Pluto. And like we've said before, so now we have energy, we have silicate base, and we have water as a solvent. So as crazy as it might seem, we just checked all three boxes that we were excited about for other candidates closer to the sun. So why not Pluto? So the real issue with Pluto is the distance from the sun and the temperature. And the temperature is the real killer. Um, I think it's really the humidity that's the killer on Pluto. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. The wind chill. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it, it's the it's minus two seventy up, but feels like minus right. three fifty with wind. <laughs> yeah. No, and the issue is that these the, the the processes that you're talking about that are creating this water that is uh, allowing for movement, tectonic movement. When we say tectonic, uh, we think in terms of like actual rock moving. And in in fact, when we're talking about tectonic movement in Pluto, it's almost entirely ice. And 
the only movement that you're seeing in the rock is ice getting into the rock and then freezing, you know, changing uh, shape and moving the rock. So this is not a thermal, like a, a heating tectonic movement. This is a freezing tectonic movement, which is fascinating in and of itself. But because of that, it's very slow moving and there's not the energy levels that we're talking about are much lower than what we've ever seen necessary for the chemical reactions to uh, allow for self-replicating chemical processes. So essentially the, the Ben Stein of dwarf right. planets. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's so boring in its, <laughs> in its timing. Fascinating to watch, but not at all interesting from a life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, well, stupid or not stupid then, life in our solar system at the edge beneath the surface of Pluto. I hate to say this because I'm fascinated with the New Horizons mission, and I hope that they send more missions out to Pluto. But from a life, pers- from an astrobiology perspective, I think it's probably kind of stupid. Okay, so now let's put a, an umbrella punctuation over the whole thing. In our solar system, life outside of Earth, stupid or not stupid? I'm a pretty cynical guy, but I've heard from people who know on this topic much better than I do. New people who are scientifically literate. The folks who should know this stuff are far more optimistic about life in our solar system than I would have guessed. So I'm going to go with not stupid. I have to, I guess I have to call you out here because I think I, I literally just thought about this and I didn't plan it. But now I have to go back to the Drake yeah. equation, episode two, Jason. Yeah. You said Drake equation, stupid. Now you just said life in our solar system. Because the Drake Possible. equation was about intelligent life. <laughs> oh, okay, that's a good point. I'll probably just edit this out so I don't sound dumb. Well, here's the thing. This has probably been our most uh, interesting episode. It's definitely been our longest. So <laughs> make sure to uh, listen to it in its entirety, which you certainly accomplished if you're hearing this right now. And then uh, I guess share it with all your friends before uh, it gets uh, decategorized as a podcast, much like Pluto. So if you, wanna, if you believe Pluto is a planet, then you believe in sharing this podcast. Get it out there and we'll be back next week. All right. Well, is there is there anything else you want to hit then now yeah. that we've covered so the whole solar system? I think the system? most fascinating aspect of astrobiology at the moment, the hot, sexy topic, uh, is exoplanets, which again, going back to an earlier conversation that we had, you know, this idea that astrobiology used to be called exobiology until they realized that it meant outside of biology. I, I'm suspect that at some point, exoplanets are going to be referred to as a different terminology because- Exoplanet means outside of a planet. Redefining science, one syllable at a time. (laughs) That said, exoplanet research has exploded in the past 20 years, and it's been fascinating to watch. So you're talking about planets that are outside our solar system, but we're able to observe with telescopes. Exactly. When I was a kid, the idea that there were planets outside of our solar system was a huge question, and many scientists doubted it. In my lifetime, we have identified thousands, if not tens of thousands of planets outside of our solar system. It's very clear that within the first five years of this research, it was immediately clear from a statistical standpoint 
that basically every star that you see in the sky has planets and multiple planets. That's astonishing. I mean, there are some stars that don't. If they're like, they're like the they're like the Uranus of stars. Right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Nobody nobody pays attention to them. They don't hang out with them. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the more that we've seen of these planets, uh, it's astonishing the variety of solar systems that you see. I mean, there was a, a solar system that was found a couple of years back where there were like six planets in orbit around a dwarf star that were all inside of the orbit of Mercury to our sun. Which when you're talking about a dwarf star, which is smaller in size, less intense in heat and radiation, that means that there are six planets inside the zone that is comparable to the zone that Earth exists in our solar system. Right. So all of these definitions are really strange. Uh, and we were talking earlier about the concept of a, 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 a I mentioned a, a, a Cyclops planet and this is the idea that there's a tidally locked planet in orbit around another star in which one side is completely baked by the, the surface of the or completely baked by the radiation of a star and the other side is completely frozen but there's this high value real estate yeah this ring in which you you could actually see life thrive it's a, it's all beachfront property that's right that's right yeah, and clearly the 1% live there. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, this idea of exoplanet research is really in its infancy. Like we can identify these planets, but we can't really – we can kind of figure out from their orbit around the star what they may or may not be composed of generally. And we can kind of figure out like – what the temperature of the planet may be. And occasionally we can figure out if it's rotating or not, but that's about the extent of the information we can get. But we've got new capabilities coming online. The next space telescope after the Hubble Space Telescope that is supposed to launch in 2021, it will probably launch in like 2038. And we made this joke earlier. <laughs> this, this space telescope was not designed to look at exoplanets, but in the process of developing it, they've included a couple of capabilities that might actually be useful in the uh, the evaluation of exoplanets, uh, including the ability you might be able to do some spectroscopic analysis of the atmospheres of any of these planets that actually have atmospheres. And uh, the 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 follow on to JWST uh, is supposed to be a, a mission called W first. It's unclear if it's actually going to get funded. Uh, at some point, there will be another space telescope that will be dedicated to looking at these atmospheres from a spectroscopic. And when you look at an atmosphere, you can look for pollution. That's right. And that's precisely what they'll be looking for are the chemical tails in the atmosphere that determine whether or not there are biological processes happening. And we know what those look like on Earth. We have some understanding, you know, the, the discussion we had earlier about methane on Mars, we have some understanding of what to look for and then figure out whether or not the isotopes are correct. And, you know, you can sort of do a- Work the equation backwards. Yeah. You, you do a Sherlock Holmes or a CSI, well, you know, depending on your level of intellect. Again, you're alienating your constituents of Northern Florida, Jason, every time. <laughs> Everyone in Florida is stupid. Sorry. <laughs> so one of the most fascinating things that you and I ever did, in my opinion, in all of the interactions that we've had. 
Jason, that was private. We talked about the camping trip in a previous episode. <laughs> we said we would never okay. think of it again. Second most interesting interaction that you and I ever had. We went up to Johns Hopkins University and we visited a lab in which they were systematically going through all of the chemical combinations that you could have for an atmosphere on any planet. They, they were just combining everything under every circumstance of heat, pressure, mixture of, chem, of chemical compounds, like everything you could find out and figuring out what the, spectros- the, the spectroscopic characterization would look like. They were essentially creating mini atmospheres in vials. Yes, that's exactly right. And then coming up with a dictionary of what that would look like so that at some point in the future, when we start looking at these exoplanet uh, atmospheres, you just flip through the dictionary and figure out what matches up and you have a, a really good understanding of what would be required to make that atmosphere. And that to me is the cutting edge of where we're going to look at astrobiology. Uh, you know, We may or may not find life on Europa we may or may not find evidence of previous life on Mars. And even if we do, we run into that question that we talked about on- Did we bring it with us? A, did we bring it with us? B, is it panspermia? Did it come from Earth at a previous time? Or did it come yeah, from the other planet to Earth? I predict we will just find octopuses everywhere. <laughs> they will be everywhere. They are patient zero. That's how it happened, Jason. Sure, they're not. It's not going to be octopi. It'll just be octopuses. <laughs> it won't be three point one four octopuses on every on every celestial body that we encounter. No, right. But what I predict is that the first life that we detect will be on a planet that is so far away that we won't be able to re- reach it in a single lifetime or even a dozen lifetimes. We will detect something that is so compelling from a biological standpoint through a spectroscopic analysis. We will end up sending some kind of a robotic mission out to determine whether or not there's life. And going back to our our earlier discussions in earlier episodes about whether or not alien life has ever visited this planet, it would have been a robot in the first place because of the time and distance required. 